I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Ah, uh, yes. Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi Lopret. It's a pleasure to have you with us today on the Boston Podcast Network. You might know me hosting Breakfast with the Beatles on the radio in New England for over 25 years. And I'm joined by Beatles professor at Suffolk University, Mr. David Gallant. Hello, David. Good to see you. Good to see you, Chachi. Very excited about our podcast today. We have a esteemed author, journalist. I mean, this guy has a long history of music journalism, a contributing editor for the Vinyl District, written for the New York Times, LA Times, New York Magazine, Time Out New York, Rolling Stone, Spin, so many others. In addition to that, Mr. Gallant, I noticed in my collection at home that I did have another book by our guest today. First, our guest is Steve Matteo. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. I've heard other people say it, Matteo, Matteo. He will let us know momentarily, but he wrote this book called Let It Be from the 33 and a Third series. I've had this in my collection, I think, since the early 2000s. He'll comment on that. And he also has a brand new book out, very exciting for me personally, because when the Beatles made it to the big screen and on television and video and film, so exciting. It changed my life back in August 1964, being a first-generation Beatles fan and seeing A Hard Day's Night on the big screen memorable never forgot it it's embedded in my memory bank for years now and he has a new book called act naturally the beatles on film and we are welcoming steve mateo hello steve good morning good afternoon how are you good i'm doing great thank you it's great to be here it's a pleasure to be here with you and as i said your book is called act naturally the beatles on film published by backbeat books available wherever fine books are sold it's a fantastic holiday gift professor gallant and it's whether you're a beatles fan or you have a friend family member that loves the beatles consider act naturally as a gift this upcoming holiday season the book is very fascinating Steve goes from a hard day's night right up to Get Back, which was released well, around this time, what, two years ago? Is that how long it's been since Get Back came out? So it's pretty up to date. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I was very lucky that I was able to uh, have it be, have it come out after Get Back, that I was able to see the series. The The book would have definitely suffered if I hadn't had that opportunity so you know the timing was not necessarily going to work that way but with covid and everything things just kept changing and so it, it all just kind of worked out well here we are approaching july of 2024 will be 60 years since a hard day's night came out and uh, as i said earlier and uh, david gallant uh, will share his uh, memories as well but when i saw it on the big screen in Watertown, Massachusetts. Boy, it changed my life, never seeing the Beatles that big. Because back then, Steve, everyone had 13-inch black and white TVs and trying to see what the Beatles looked like on those small screens. But boy, they just covered all those media boundaries. They, they're fantastic on television, on film, and A Hard Day's Night changed my life. How about you, Steve? I mean, I'm I'm not old enough to have seen it when it first came out. I, I probably saw it much later, but you know, the Beatles were from when you're a child, I mean, the Beatles were there. So I'm, I'm just at a kind of a weird age 
where it's a little fuzzy when they were on Ed Sullivan the first time. But as the years go by, you, you discover these things. I mean, I could just remember being a kid in the back of the car with the parents. And here in New York, it would be WABC 77 radio. And I mean, that's all you heard was the Beatles and the Stones and Motown and the Love and Spoonful. And they were part of it. I mean, they were very special, obviously, but I don't think you realize that it's really until much later. That's correct. Uh, David Gallant, your impressions when you first saw A Hard Day's Night? Well, I, Chachi, I believe it was on a small television, black and white, maybe being shown during the holiday season on NBC television. They would run it maybe once a year. And this may have been in the, the late 60s, early 70s. But the other great moment for Hard Day's Night for me and, and, and recounts in great detail the history of reissues and remasterings is when it appeared on the big screen at a local movie theater showcase cinema chain in the early 1980s because of the dolby sound technology and they gave you a souvenir ticket and there were some older folks who both pretended and maybe not screamed just like they did in the theaters in 64 and 1981 or whatever it might have been and Chachi had dovetailed at that wonderful time. I think I mentioned with one of our, our previous guests, I, I after, before going to the theater, I was still consuming Philip Norman's Shout, its first edition when it came out, had seen the uh, the complete Beatles on, on PBS television, the, the video. And so this new crisp version, before all the other wonderful crisp versions of A Hard Day's Night that were put out with other technologies that came along, that was really a great moment for me to see it in that context of its, I don't know, Steve, how you might call it, its first second life. <laughs> because then when it hits DVD, it's got, it's got a, or, or VHS, it's got a second, second life. And then DVD is a third, second life. And then the whole uh, collections that came out. And shortly after that, I found, I found a book that had Hard Day's Night, the screenplay amidst three other great British film screenplays. And uh, so that's, that's really where it, it started again for me. And I thought that this was, uh, it was more than just a, a pop film and obviously everything that has been written about it and that Steve covers, but also gave me a sense that this is a great thing to to teach and to discuss well and putting it in the line of a lot of other films as Steve does. And uh, some things I'll mention later, a couple of films he particularly talks about in relation to A Hard Day's Night where you wouldn't think of it that way, but we'll get to that in a bit. So that's really what it was for me, its first reissue with, with Dolby Sound and, a, and what they call the crisp print at that time. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember driving to Rhode Island to see that particular release, and I went alone because I couldn't find anyone to go with me. But Steve, the uh, the movie has stood the test of time, as I said, approaching 60 years, and it scores a healthy 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that was that's all. <laughs> that's all right. But Steve, I mean, and back then, we're talking about United United Artists Films who simply wanted to sell a lot of soundtrack albums and they thought they let's uh, let's get this on film before they 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 move on and it's the 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 youth of a of the world moves on to a different idol and they thought that hey this film ain't going to be much let's just make money on a soundtrack but the first of many times the beatles defied all odds they they looked great on screen they were funny. It was a club amongst all of us, separate from our parents, to 
to to hear their little Liverpudlian accents and give us a kiss and all these little one-liners and that we started to adopt and say. And it was just a, a memorable moment in time. And here we are all these years later, and the Beatles continue to divide the odds. I mean, it, it is a great film. I mean, it stands outside of just the Beatles and just pop music. I mean, it's just a great film. And it was regarded as that by mainstream film critics when it first came out. And you alluded to United Artists. I mean, they were poised to to get involved with the Beatles because, number one, they had a very strong presence in Europe and in England. So they were aware of Beatlemania as it was happening in England before it really happened in America. And also, they were a company that had a very strong record label, United Artists Records, that put out a lot of soundtrack albums that sold a lot of money. And so, you know, whether the Beatles were going to last or not, they certainly didn't know that. But they figured, you know, hey, these guys are huge over here in England, and let's capitalize on it, and let's, you know, get the soundtrack rights and put out a soundtrack and make some money. You know, I don't think they ever had any idea it was going to be become such a great film. I mean, you know, they they had they hire Walter Shenson to be the producer, and he's the one that hires Richard Lester, and and Lester is really, I think, the person that makes it. And I think most people will agree with that. If it was a different director, maybe it doesn't turn out as well. But Lester was just perfect in terms of the kind of person that the Beatles liked to work with. I mean, he was an American and they liked everything American. He was a very smart guy. He went to UPenn. He was very, he was this precocious young guy. He was also a musician and he worked with the goons and he worked with Peter Sellers so there were so many things that kind of lined up. George Martin also worked with the goons, worked with Peter Sellers. So th- these these things in terms of the relationships that the Beatles had with people, sometimes it was just kind of luck or, or serendipity, and it just kind of worked out. And, you know, the Beatles – Well, Steve, oh, I, David. oh, sorry about that, Chachi. No. I just I, – I also think we may, we may get to it, and even if we have John's sort of sardonic line about – Alan Owen being a quote unquote professional Liverpudlian. Um, it, that is an important part of that mix. I mean, because if we think that the greatness of the film is owed a lot to Lester, both as director, his experience, and the way he got along with the Beatles, you had a, a good, well, somewhat flexible backbone of a script that I think that also worked well in the mix, allowed enough improvisation, but did have what Lester wanted, where it wasn't it wasn't dialogue heavy. There weren't scenes that, like he said, that had to be carried by these non-actors, but they didn't lead that type of, of life. A lot of their life was 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 performed, if you will, in those bursts, right? In those short bursts. And so I mean I, I know that the folks who are reading the reading your book would realize that Owen's script was nominated for an Academy Award for original screenplay. So it's that great sort of combination. And Let's get it out fast would normally be something that we would think is a liability for a work of art, right? Or a piece of entertainment. But here, goodness knows that that was its one of its great attributes, right? The, 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 yeah. need, the pressure for budget and time. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, you're, you're correct. I mean, bringing in Alan was, was great because he was from Liverpool. He was a very smart guy. He came from the theater. He was a playwright. And so obviously he had a good feel for dialogue and understood the, the sort of Liverpool scouse 
their sort of dialect. And that worked out. Yes, John later was sort of wasn't so crazy about Alan, but Alan was the right guy. And like you said, too, is they had a script and they did adhere to it for the most part. But there was room for improvisation that they did do. It's interesting that he never really went on to do more in terms of film. He continued to write for theater and he he got involved with television, but he sort of faded away. And and I don't know the reason why necessarily, but yes, I mean, all of these things were right. It it all kind of worked out, but I I think it it becomes United Artists was, was the right sort of studio. And, and by, by studio, they were very unique at the time in that they weren't like a physical studio like here in America, like Paramount would have been or Fox or whatever the case may be. They were very much a distribution company. They would make deals with people, with producers, and the producer would make the film and they would do it in a certain budget in a certain amount of time. And then United Artists would distribute it. It was, it was kind of unique for a, as large a company as they were at the time. And they were very much an international company too. And so it all, again, it, it's interesting how these things kind of – some of them just kind of worked out for the Beatles. They just seemed to connect with the right people, with Brian, with George Martin, with United Artists, with Richard Lester, recording at, at that time EMI Studios. So, yes, it, it all kind of works. And the people that worked on A Hard Day's Night, the people behind the scenes, all of the what they called below the line, I think they call it on the film business kind of people, in particular – the cinematographer, Gilbert Taylor, he also at that time was the cinematographer on Dr. Strangelove. Just to give you some sense of who he was, this was a, a film that was – Dennis O'Dell had said it was very much a low-budget film made by people who were real high-class filmmakers. And it, it just kind of all falls into place. And Steve, it was a conscious – several things. It was a conscious decision, decision to do it in black and white. But that, if you can comment on that, but also going back to what I said moments ago that the United Artists just wanted to sell some soundtracks. They didn't even care about the ownership of the film, right? Was, did Dick Lester make a deal after X amount of time, the ownership goes to him and then the ownership changes again? How did that work? Well, well, what happened was it, it actually reverted eventually to Shenson. Okay. He's the one who was able to retain the rights. And once the movie did well, to, to Shenson's credit, he gave Lester a percentage that was not worked out in the original contract, which is – that would never happen today in the world of film today, in today's Hollywood or major film uh, studios or what, whatever the case may be. And then eventually Shenson sold – well, he didn't. I'm sorry. The, the, the estate of Walter Shenson eventually sold off the film – and all the memorabilia and everything connected with it to the Karsh family. And they're the ones that have sole ownership of the film. And I, I spoke with the family about that. And, and they've done a great job of, of curating it and respecting it and making it available. And it's been reissued many times on DVD and Blu-ray through the Criterion Collection. And they've done a, they've done a great job. Now, with help... Uh, it's shared with the Karsh family and the Beatles or Apple. So tell me about the Karsh family. Are they a, f- a family in the film industry? And how did that happen? Are they just a family they're, with a lot well, of money? They're, they're, yes, they're, they're, they're wealthy people. 
who have their heart in the right place, fortunately. And the wife actually bought it for the husband as a gift. It was like a birthday gift. So like my wife will buy me a Beatles album for my birthday and she <laughs> bought, but we're, we're, we're joking here, but it's actually really good because they've been so respectful of the film and have done everything they can to preserve it and to make sure it's presented in a way befitting a film of such importance and how we all feel about the Beatles. I, I recently saw the film on the big screen over the summer uh, at a cinema here in New York, uh, I gave an introduction, we showed the film, I did a Q&A afterwards, and it was this absolutely beautiful black and white full screen print, and it just looks and sounds, you know, really amazing. And, and if you have a copy of the most recent Blu-ray, I believe it's 4K, they, I think they've put it out on Blu-ray two different times. I mean, it's excellent, it has a lot of extras. I mean, everybody knows the Criterion Collection is like the way to preserve films that people can watch on dvd or blu-ray so let's be let's be thankful that that, that they can because some big studio or somebody could have came in and bought it up and not preserved it correctly or or whatever the case may be i mean we we view it as the beatles that's how we see it but it is an important film period in film history particularly in british cinema of the 60s which is as when the book i get heavily into this so, Steve, I'm going to I'm going to give you a phrase which I didn't I don't think I saw, but it occurred to me as you were you were making the the link back to the great Anglo-American film combined productions. And of course, you mentioned Carol Reed's The Third Man, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And now reminding us that the cinematographer had worked on Dr. Strangelove. If you look at the third man, Dr. Strangelove, and then Hard Day's Night, here's a new phrase. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before. Hopefully I came up with it. How about we call this film a great pop noir? Okay. I mean, it's so interesting because that night that we did the screening, it was, it was part of a series of films under comedy. Okay. Now we think of it as a music film. Okay. Comedy. I mean, some people have said it's very influenced by the French new wave. And I talk about that aspect of it in my book. So yes, pop noir. I mean, you, if you want to call it that, I mean, there, it fits into so many different things. I, I think what's great about this period and a film like this is Although on the surface, it seems just like a pop music film or a rock music film, it really can be so many other things and absorb so many other influences. And I think that's to Lester's credit. I mean, so many people view him as a, a director of comedies. And that's why sometimes he doesn't receive the due that he truly deserves as a great filmmaker, because sometimes comedy is not perceived as, impo as important. And so it gets relegated to something not as, as important as a major drama or something like that. So he was obviously very influenced by the, the French New Wave. I mean, I think he was very influenced by television. He And he, yeah. w he worked in television. It's in black and white. It's quick, now, young at that time. In England especially, it was really exciting. Television in England was really exciting, which shows like that was the week that was and the, the music shows that were starting to come into their own at the time. So there, there's so much going on. Yes, it has a look of that sort of 40s noir that we associate more with American films. 
but there's it's it, it's a comedy not sometimes in spite of itself but i always thought that it's also comedy to highlight other sort of lurking menace the claustrophobia the chase everyone around them kind of losing their you know what about them the sense of claustrophobia it's it's that great comment on the on the trappings of fame right that it's 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 not all wonderful and there's there's always a little bit of an undertone of of threat in some ways and they can only escape by leaving the earth in the helicopter or getting on stage right and something like that so it's i think that when we get into it with 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 my students that the the set the three great set scenes are, are all about that type of they're living in this mad world that whether it's George and Simon or or John and Millie or the press conference where they don't even need to be there they might as well be be cardboard cutouts they they come and they go and the same questions could be asked so it's it's great commentary that way right all in barely 89 minutes so it's yes it's it's always a great great place to start but i thought i would make that link because you mentioned the third man which i i hadn't necessarily put those films side by side in my mind but why the heck not no i, I mean i talk about the third man in in, in my book and, and it yeah. comes up it comes up several times i believe and it's important because and i'll try to encapsulate this quickly prior to the 60s you know british films there were some really good british films but there never was like a thing that was like a certain kind of British film or a certain genre of, of film. I mean, there was always great directors and actors, but it, it was never really a big deal. It was always sort of uh, American films, Hollywood. Then after World War II, it was France. It was Italy. I guess you could say places even like Sweden, even Japan to some degree. And so what happens is, at, at the time that A Hard Day's Night hit, it hits at the same time that British cinema in general sort of explodes. And it sort of becomes it sort of becomes the center. It's after the kitchen sink films, we get the what's called the swing in London films. And it becomes this kind of the center of the universe there for a while. I mean, James Bond. I mean, nothing is bigger than the James Bond films. And nothing is more British than the James Bond films. And you get all of these spy films and spy spoofs and you get the emergence of all of these incredible directors and particularly actors people like richard burton peter sellers julie christie albert finney i mean i could we could be here for the next hour it's extraordinary the amount of michael Caine is just he explodes and internationally and so the beatles the bond films it's it's the whole swing in london thing which comes kind of after A Hard Day's Night, mm. it's this sort of cultural explosion that now it's London. That is the place, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Herman's Hermits, all the Dusty Springfield. I mean, it's like everything is happening there. London is the place. And, and, and it supplants places like Paris and Rome and New York. And then, of course, much later it will shift to San Francisco, but I'm getting ahead of the story. <laughs> well, you do talk about the other British films. And for me, I mean, what I liked about, I loved about Hard Day's Night, the locale, you know, it was all on location. And then the other film that comes to mind is To Sir With Love. I mean, those shots of what what the uh, the locale looks like, Liverpool, the whole English setting, it was in color. But boy, to Sir with love and even Alfie, those are films that broke through uh, through to the United States, and I still enjoy those films today. Yes, I mean, there's no question about it. It's just 
what what happens is the sort of kitchen sink films in England are the 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 English people grappling with no longer being the, the empire that rules the world anymore after World War II. And then the sort of films that you mentioned, the sort of swinging London films, sort of now reflect that we are now the center of culture. While we're not the, the, the mighty empire that rules the world, we are now the center of culture. Everything, music, film, fashion, photography, art. I mean, everything is happening there, and London is the place. And those films reflect it around the world. Those films are not just big in England. They're big. Once, it, once anything happens in America, it, that's it. Then it's, it's like the seal of approval. And it makes big stars out of people. I mean, it's interesting with To Sir With Love, the main character is an American. It's Sidney Poitier, which is kind of, which is kind of interesting. Now, with Alfie... That is Zulu is the film that sort of breaks Michael Caine, but Alfie is the film that makes Michael Caine an icon and has remained an icon all through these years. That's one of the other things about the folks that worked on not just not just the early Beatle films, but these British 60s films is that their careers went on for for decades. And many of these people went on to work on the Harry Potter films, to work on the Lord of the Rings films. I mean, Abbey Road Studios then was known as EMI, is a place where so many of these soundtracks are made. When you watch the credits of the Harry Potter films, Lord of the Rings films, a lot of these films, watch at the end and you're going to see the orchestras recorded at Abbey Road Studios. I mean, it's still, it's still the place. And there's that huge, that huge studio, not number two where the Beatles were, mostly worked, which is a big one, but the other big the bigger one there, which is, I forget if it's one or three. I always forget which one is. I believe it's number one. And so it, it's not just a flash in the pan kind of thing. In the 70s, America would sort of reclaim the, the sort of cultural high ground in film. All of the Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, all of those people, it would really go back to sort of America. But in this period, it, England rules. There's no question about it. Well, well, even even the the regional. You mentioned the kitchen sink. I mean, we have we have Norm basically from Saturday night and Sunday morning, and the, the Alan Silito and and uh, you you mentioned if we think of was it Finney who was look back in anger when that was made into a film, right? right? All of that realism, and even where does Antonioni decide to do blow up in London, right? So that becomes the the spot for all of that, right? Right, so it, exactly. It certainly is that becomes that center. And, and even the art house too. films that radiate. Godard yes, too. Exactly. I mean, and you've got Americans making yeah. Stanley Kubrick. He's an American yeah. making right. making right. movies. There, Richard Lester, an American. So right. yeah, it's interesting you brought that up because Antonioni and Godard deciding, oh yeah, I'm going to go to London. Where they come right. from places where they have their this their own film, their own film right. culture. Right. And to go there, right. it shows you, yes. And Blow Up becomes so important. That is such an important film in the 60s. Right. Some people think it is the film of the 60s, which you could argue one way or another. So, yes, that's right. a great point that you brought up, and I, I bring that up in the book. Well, you, you also get the reversal that you just mentioned at the very end of the 60s, as we get to the dawn of the 70s, and then the, the art moves to America, we have the Brit Schlesinger giving us Midnight Cowboy. 
<laughs> in right. New York, exactly. right? So then we go we right. go to New York after London, yeah, which is sort right. of the first great film of the seventies, even though it's in it's in sixty nine. So Chachi, we've entered we we've entered a film studies class, and uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> uh, no, no, that's okay, that's well, all right. This is it's fantastic, and it, it is, and I think that this book is not only for Beatle fans, but students who are in filmmaking. You've done such a fine job, Steve, going into some detail. For instance, I can't tell you since I read your book how many times I went to YouTube to find that clip of the three characters in that English film running across the bridge and how you kind of align that with the opening scene of the Beatles running down the street and the joyful, youthful exuberance. And that, I really I enjoyed that that bit of information that you put in your book. Right. You talk actually what you're talking about is Jules and Jim, directed by Francois Truffaut. Right. And it's the it's two men and a woman. The woman is dressed like a man. And I just to me I felt I didn't really make the connection until I started researching this book. And it was more of just one day I'm like, wait a minute, that looks like that. <laughs> it's like it's I think really what it is, it isn't so much that it exactly looks like it, but it reflects this new youthful exuberance, this post-war baby boom. And the baby boom thing is often looked at as more of an American phenomenon, but it, it did translate to other countries. And so it's it's kind of of the same cloth. And it's just this this new thing. Teenage, this teenager thing is is a 60s thing or even started in the 50s where it becomes a thing. In the in the past, you were either a child or an adult, where you have this teenager who becomes this important sort of this group in terms of their interests, in terms of their, their buying power. They have money. It sounds crazy, but so, yeah. <laughs> well, there's Chachi Vincent the <coughs> Truffaut. Lester also gives us not so much the youthful exuberance, right? But as the as the Beatles leave, trying to rescue Ringo, it's it's Keystone Cops. It's everything he saw: silent films going through the lots there in 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 Hollywood, right? It's with yes, the he's a big it's, Keaton. Yeah, he was a big Buster very, Keaton fan. Yeah, it's the perils of Paulie meets the Beatles, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and I before we move on from, I could talk about a hard day's night for days. I just love that film to this day. The American soundtrack. I mean, a lot of people were disgruntled with the incidental music, but I actually enjoyed it. Me too. I mean, it's a soundtrack album and that's that's really what it is. Those United Artists soundtrack albums that I was talking about before, I mean, they were almost all instrumental music. Just the instru- the, the incidental music. So, yeah, I mean, I I like Help too. You know what? It's nice you can have both. You've got the American that is very much the soundtrack with the incidental music. And then you've got the UK edition, which is it's all songs. So I I like it. And I I even like the what, you know, the stuff that George Martin has done, you know, with the with the film music. Well, I can't tell you how many times, you know, for the radio show, uh, part of my opening uh, intro is I should have known better the instrumental version from the UA soundtrack in America. I can't tell you how many people have sent me emails saying, where did you get that? And it's like, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta find the American Hard Day's Night and it's available in the box set that they put out a bunch of years ago or you just go out and get the original vinyl. 
but some people don't still don't know where that's from. But I did enjoy, and I still do enjoy the instrumental music. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz, and the chartmeister, Michael Miltwolf, travel back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely, other times they make you cringe, and that's when comedy and chaos ensue on Past Tense. You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milton and Dave, respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for Milk. It spared the audience the usual allotment of milk fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are put in. I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed, but I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. It's past tens to a top ten time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcast or visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. No, let me just clarify one thing, Steve. Did the, there were probably dailies each day on the on a hard day's night. Those were all destroyed, taped over. From what I understand, what this is a because of Twickenham Film Studios, they would not keep anything that wasn't used. They would just get rid of things. I mean, this is this is an unfortunate phenomenon of that era, the fifties and the sixties, like all the early Johnny Carson shows that were filmed in that were videotaped in new york i mean that stuff was all they just wiped it you know that's what they did because of money and also they just they had no idea that this stuff would become important that culturally this would become things that are significant so yes unfortunately this was a thing that went on i mean I'm, i'm sure there's there's some of it that's been saved or rescued or somebody forgot to throw it away but for the most part it's yeah they would just you know Get rid of it. They don't have money. They don't have storage. I mean, film also, I think there was a sense because it's this nitrate material that it is very flammable. It's de- it's dangerous to keep it around unless you know exactly how to preserve it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of part of it, I believe, too. Twickenham wasn't that big of a place. <laughs> I mean, the idea was this is where we make the movies, not where we preserve the films. Yeah. And listen, all I'm sure the, the press – they were just ready to pounce on the Beatles to say, boy, that's a terrible film. But everyone was surprised by how great the movie was, right? Yes. And again, I really think that, look, obviously it's the music, it's the personality of the Beatles, but I think it's the, it's the filmmaker. It's Lester. He, he, he had this idea. The, it's, it's a cinema verite film. It's not, it's not nonfiction, though. It's fiction. But it's based on a certain reality. And I think that, that that sort of elasticity worked where there's times when they could make it, well, yeah, these are the Beatles. This is who they are. But then there's times, well, this is a film. It's a fiction film. And we can, we can adhere to that. And he was nimble enough to be able to go back and forth and, and make that work. He was just – he was able to work very quickly, which I think was smart because, look, if you're making a documentary, that's kind of how you're doing it. So I think he, he was very smart in the in the way that he did it, and, and, I, and I think it really worked. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's also very it's it's very sly. I saw like Grandpa, a sly villain, right? Very very sly. With obviously we have these iconic figures. The word Beatles is never spoken in the film, right? Not once. You just see it on Ringo's drum set and the light and on the helicopter. And so when when I introduce how the film is received to the students, I get to introduce the highfalutin term paradigm shift to them coming from Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, where we look at the Andrew Saris quote that this is the citizen cane of jukebox musicals and a citizen cane of anything means something was done up to a certain point one way. And after that, it completely changed and you had to do it all these other ways. And so there, flavor of the day, Taylor Swift has a concert film. Billie Eilish had a concert film. Britney Spears, Mariah Carey, all of them. And so there were certain patterns that had to be followed after what the Beatles did. And they're all still trying to swim back to that original point of what they gave us. Never quite makes it there, really, in any other iteration after that. So it's the reviews are are great at that time. And we have the... Making of a Hard Day's Night documentary where Roger Ebert talks about the Andrew Saris quote, and it really gives them a sense of of what film critics were doing, not just entertainment critics or a brief review, but an actual film critic from the Village Voice and and how they was put in that line where they were reviewing this much like they would have reviewed Lawrence of Arabia or anything else, and that it was it was now raised to that level of of necessary commentary. So yeah, we get to talk about paradigm shift in that. So in that sense, if, if Lester's being talked about in the same breath as Orson Welles. I'm sure he slept well at night. Yes. Yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, I, I think that it is, as you say, it's it's a paradigm shift. And I think part of it is because just the, the whole culture is evolving. And so you have these film critics who you know, are taking film very seriously now, which is it started more with in, in Europe with you had people writing about film. And you had filmmakers writing about film. Truffaut wrote about films before he made films and, and, and other folks. And so you have people like Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael and, and these people who are taking film very seriously now. And they're looking at films very differently, very much through the sort of outdoor theory of film. And th- th- this is coming about. It's, there's all of these things happening. You know, the period is very much a cultural renaissance like, you know, like Paris in the 20s or like the Renaissance in, 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 uh, in Italy. And, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to see these sort of cultural Renaissance moments anymore because I think everything now is driven by technology. And it is technology is, is slowly killing culture, I believe. But I don't think we want to have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, and going back to uh, to what we were saying earlier – the fact that it was filmed in black and white, very film noir, but there was there was truth to it because Alan Owen traveled with the Beatles for a couple of weeks. And so there was a lot of reality there. And what what was it like to be a Beatle in that 36 to 48 hour period? And it was just such a breath of fresh air. And again, the Beatles did something no one else did. And the bands that followed, I mean, please, the Herman's Hermits movie, is one of the worst, if you don't mind me yeah, saying. I watched that so. recently, as a matter of fact. I mean, a lot of those <laughs> films were just, they became what A Hard Day's Night wasn't. Okay. Dave Clark Five did it. Dave Clark Herman's Five. Hermit, mm-hmm. Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yeah, there's hey. a lot of these kind of films. They're just, I mean, later we would get things that were more interesting. Maybe they didn't always work, 
But, you know, I, I, I think, and it's interesting, I just wrote about this because it's just been reissued. I think that the period from a hard day's night to the last waltz is this kind of golden period for these films. Right after a hard day's night, it's some of these kind of movies, are, they either work or they don't because they're either goofy or they try to do something more interesting. But then obviously, as we get later in the 60s, after, say, Easy Rider, and we get into the 70s, there's there are a lot of music-related films that are kind of interesting and artsy and underground. They try new things that don't always work. And then I think it kind of culminates with The Last Waltz. That has become sort of, you could say, after A Hard Day's Night, that maybe the last waltz, or maybe you could say the last waltz is the greatest music film. Some people have suggested it is, that that is actually the best one. I mean, there's been some other, Don't Look Back is a very important film, which, which comes very much on the heels of, of A Hard Day's Night. It's very much, they're close together. And, and there's others along the way that we could we could talk about. Oh, the monkey's but, head, um, you know, it's like. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> at the time it was like a mess and nobody liked it and it was trash. But I mean, now we look back at it and it's kind of interesting. And the people that worked on it were very interesting people who would go on <laughs> to do many other things. So sometimes I think what like a film like Head becomes, it's like a place for people who haven't made it yet who are very creative and want to do something interesting kind of get to experiment and get to fail sometimes that's what you need to do i mean look at the people involved in head jack nicholson i mean the the rafelson and i I always forget his other name raybert they go on to do all kinds of other things and produce great films great american films and i get into some of that in the book too So it's always easy. People love to sort of attack. I mean, I think you look at someone like Neil Young. I've talked about this in other interviews. When he makes that album that isn't a Neil Young album, everybody's, oh, this is terrible. Why is he doing this? He's, oh, how could he do this? I don't want to waste my – well, I think sometimes an artist needs to make a certain kind of record, film, whatever, to then do the next thing that is – representative of who they really are and it is great it has you 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 have to be allowed if especially people like neil young or van morrison who make so many records like they're just they're not thinking about they're not thinking about it as a product they're just people who they breathe their art 24 7 one of the well, this is a again a different conversation, Steve. But I, I might stretch beyond Last Waltz to at least stop making sense, Jonathan. Denton. Yes, of course, definitely, uh, right. you're right. So, but speaking of the Neil Young thing, John Lennon himself, Chachi, I think there's many good clips of this when he is he's there with Yoko, and it's in the '70s, and he's arguing with a with a journalist and asking, well, why don't you make good music anymore? And he says, well, look, I am making. This is what I'm doing. I'm not that guy from A Hard Day's Night, you remember? <laughs> like that, great for what it was, but. Let's not be the the four caricatures, which may have had some truth into it or not. So he uses actually Hard Day's Night as a way of differentiating that now I can actually I'm actually doing other things, right? This Perfect. Is, that Perfect. led me to this, right? So, well, uh, Chachi, welcome to our Hard Day's Night podcast exclusively. <laughs> it's my favorite uh, you know, film. <laughs> But I mean, look at I. Steve, even, um, I mean, this book is fantastic, yeah. Steve. You've seen this the screenplay. I quote, I quote from that book. Quite extensively, because yeah. there's a there's a really long interview with with Richard Lester in there. That's a wonderful book in terms of the text 
and in terms of the, the photographs. And maybe we should mention, because I can see it, I know what it is, but maybe you could just mention the title and the author for people to look for that book. Yeah, it's A Hard Day's Night, the complete pictorial record of the film, and it goes into detail on every frame, how it was shot, and certainly the the script, because back then we would have to study what they were saying because I think they wanted to Americanize the audio, the dialogue, so we could understand it. But, boy, we loved it the way it was. We wanted to, to hear how they talked the nuances, I mean, because they didn't necessarily say dead grotty, but it, it came from that whole time uh, of the Beatles in, in A Hard Day's Night. And I, I I think it's a fantastic movie. So, yeah, it's the only it's the only film, Chachi. Uh, it, you were present once years ago. I used to split the class up into groups and they would do a presentation, a group presentation during the final exam. Him, where each group would would give a presentation on a Beatles film, not a Hard Day's Night, because that's the only film that we actually watch fully in class and discuss with all the apparatus. And in the future, Steve, uh, your your commentary will be part of our discussion. In the past, I have relied on one of the authors you mentioned, and I love I I do love Bob Neverson's book, and I think this it's it's it, I also love it because of its I'm not going to say because of its brevity, but it's very tight. And it's it's a great approach that way for when it for when it was and for what it was. And obviously, there's many other commentaries that necessarily can come after it, obviously, including yours. But it is the only film that we watch in its entirety. Stop, break it down and have a lot of the other the other apparatus. And it's also the touchstone to go back to within the Beatles film context. I mean, I I make the bold assertion and ask the students to discuss for that for that group that would present on Let It Be pre Peter Jackson is Let It Be the sort of anti or underneath the surface version of A Hard Day's Night. All four of us stuck together, but instead of looking happy, we're not always looking happy. <laughs> uh, uh, but we are sort of the same in, in some ways, right? Hard Day's Night, they have to escape everything with a helicopter. Let It Be, they escape up to the roof. So it's kind of the the family dynamic that has aged in whatever way they want to think it's aged, right? So that's a great cap that way. Uh, certainly it wasn't Lindsay Hogg's in, intention looking at a hard day's night and say, well, how do I make the antithesis of that, but keep the same spirit to it? But in that sense, you know, that, that that's why we spent so much time with a hard day's night. And so Chachi, I don't mind that we're going down this road, but I think eventually we may have to do another pod with Steve where we, we fully get into all the other films. Yeah. Uh, well, also, Steve, one thing I'll mention, if you listen to Chachi's radio program, he didn't mention his outro is the instrumental version of this boy from the uh, yeah. Hard Day's Night soundtrack. Yeah. So uh, it's, oh, you have listened to it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Professor, for bringing that up. But the other thing about Dick Lester with the Hard Day's Night and Help, when all four Beatles are on the screen at the same time, it's magical. But then when you break down those solo um, uh, segments of the film, scenes of the film, George with Simon going over the T-shirts and, and, and Ringo parading, when, when Dick Lester broke it down thinking – and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In your book, he said that he thought George was the best actor and Paul was the weakest of the actors. Right. Yes. Can yeah. you comment on he, that? He, Sure. I mean, it's very simple. He just felt that George was just natural. I mean, he just, George wasn't acting. George was just being George. Where Paul was somewhat self-conscious. His, his girlfriend, Jane Asher, was in the theater. Paul was very much a man about town going to films and going to the theater and very much immersed in culture. And so he was, 
maybe trying a little too hard and because he had been so exposed to it, where the others really, they weren't as immersed in it. And so they just kind of were themselves. They didn't really give it much thought. I also think that with George and John, it was sort of like, yeah, whatever, we'll just do this. They, they don't really care. And Ringo is Ringo. Let's face it. I mean, he he is a personality unto him, unto himself. Paul always said that he felt, and I think John even said the same thing, that Ringo would have been a star anyway, even if he wasn't in the Beatles. He would have just been Ringo. <laughs> yeah, and I've spoken to Ringo a handful of times, and he would he. T- he has told me a couple of times that his favorite scene was, of course, when he's parading and he's walking down the river there and meets, I think his name is Charlie with the tire. And and he was up all night. And this is the thing about the Beatles. I mean, listen, if we were 21 years old and we're in a band, all three of us, and we had a film shoot at 6 a.m. the next day, we would have been home in bed at like 7 o'clock the night before. These guys were up. Ringo's like, we were up partying all night, and we just went to the set. So you see me as being hungover, still drunk. And that was the thing about the Beatles. They knew where they needed to be, and they did it their way. Even when George Martin tried to make them record How Do You Do It, they most bands would say, yes, sir. But the Beatles knew who they were, what they wanted to be, and that that was the the uniqueness of these guys. And Ringo totally up all night the night before and shows up for a shoot. Not a question. I mean, what can you what can you what can you say about Ringo? <laughs> it's like I listen to the now and then, and you yes. listen to it, and we could talk about it all day, but we won't. And it's like one of the things that struck me is is just. What makes it so much of a Beatles song? It's Ringo. His drumming is mm-hmm. just incredible. Yep. And referring to Let It Be, it's like you listen to Let It Be. I mean, they're they're falling apart. They're breaking up. There's all kinds of problems going on. But his drumming is just in the pocket all the way through. I mean, never give. It's like a it's like a clinic on how to be a drummer without pointing out the fact that I'm the drummer. Look at me. Yeah. So I know sometimes John has said Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, but you know, John and I are going to disagree on this one. He is a great drummer and we forget it. And when you hear now and then it reminds me, Oh yeah, that's the guy that played drums in the Beatles. And it's his drumming is, is what makes it so much of a Beatles song because it's so much of John in the beginning with the singing that it sounds like initially very much like a John Lennon solo piece from the 70s. Now, now Professor, <laughs> Professor, when you're with your students, I mean, this is a very unique time because, gentlemen, there's multiple generations that weren't here in the 60s that are experiencing a full-fledged Beatles release, a 45. <laughs> uh, how, do you, how do your students feel about that? They're alive to see a to see and witness well, a Beatles record being released. Well, any, yeah, it's, it's a, it's the Beatles are the gift that keeps on giving. I never have to go through a semester where there isn't something that will happen in the ether, something that will happen in the, in the entertainment universe or any type of universe where I can't seize on it and take advantage of it. And I'll tell them at the beginning of the term, they often disbelieve me that, through this class, they now will have a new pair of glasses through which they will see the world in beetle colors. 
and they'll assume that I'm going to plant things around the city for them to run into that reference the Beatles to say, I don't have to do that. It will just happen. So with now and then, there's actually been two articles in our school newspaper. Someone wrote, oh, it's not really a Beatles song, it was an opinion piece in the entertainment section of our school newspaper. And then I was interviewed by a former student of mine who writes for the paper. And so now there's a an article in there that references uh, my commentary that it certainly is a Beatles song. And putting it in relation to what came out in uh, in the mid-90s, that it was from that era, but now we have technology to make it clearer. So not only did that happen uh, this semester to take advantage of talking about the continued relevance of the Beatles or even the... Re- as soon as Now and Then was coming out, no one talked about the new Stones album anymore <laughs> that had been released. And then, speaking of the gift that keeps on giving, we were discussing Rubber Soul last week, end of last week. And so I'm watching a football game on, on Sunday afternoon, and there's a commercial that Amazon debuts of the three older women reminiscing about sledding down a hill. And what song are they playing but an instrumental version of In My Life? And so I played that in class, and someone had seen it, and they thought, well, that sounded familiar. I said, yes, because we just talked about In My Life yesterday. And so I don't have to, I don't have to go out and find these things. They, they, they come to us. And so that's where the, the generations never have to think that deeply and long without hearing the Beatles in their lives or referenced. I mean, we, we, we discuss, hey, does anyone have any original idea or what is the use? Well, get into T.S. Eliot, tradition in the individual talent. How do you stand on what had happened in the past and make it new? So, Steve, when when we start a hard day's night, we go through the opening scene, and after the opening scene, we discuss five to six other versions of that opening scene that others have used, whether it's the Jonas Brothers film, anything from the Jonas Brothers film to the the Nickelodeon series Big Time Rush to Danny Boyle and the opening of of train spotting where he referred to his film or critic did as a hard day's night on heroin <laughs> where the four characters, the character, the five characters are introduced running away from the cops through the streets of, of, of Glasgow or Edinburgh, Glasgow. And so there are all these iterations of the opening scene and things that happen in a hard day's night. I said, why are people doing that? It's for particular reasons. Why are they using it? And where does that come from? It's a reliance, a reliance on that popular culture form to enhance your own status for nostalgia, but also to prove a point that now we're going to tell you something and give you something that is supposed to make you feel good about, I don't know, friendship, happiness, freedom, whatever it's going to be. And Hard Day's Night becomes that template to express that feeling over and over and over again. To a makeup ad featuring Mick, da- uh, Mick Jagger's daughter Jade for Rimmel Makeup, where she's <laughs> the band that's playing behind her is being chased black and white, Hard Day's Night style through the streets of London. So, and it'll happen again at a, at a future date and time. I, I don't quite know, but it's going to be renewed, refreshed, or in some ways regurgitated. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so, Steve, your book, Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film on Backbeat Books. Fantastic job, and it sounds like, I mean, it is so detailed-oriented. It sounds like you worked on it for 10 years, but how how long did you work on it? It it felt like 10 years. Well, from the idea to publication was was almost exactly four years, but I probably spent maybe three and a quarter years of that time actually doing the research and the writing and, and the editing process which I don't do by myself. 
So it, because of COVID, it just kind of kept getting delayed because of get back mostly. Mm-hmm. And it just made sense. I just, I wanted to delay it as much as possible because I didn't want it to come out when we're still in this lockdown where people can't go to the bookstore and buy it or people can't come to events, you know, that I can get involved with to, to promote and publicize it. You know, I wanted as much time to go by. I mean, this book should have been out a lot sooner. It also, the intention was to write a much shorter book. But once I started researching and writing, and particularly because I had more time, I just realized, you know, this is this is going to be a much longer book. I mean, what you have in your hands there is is almost 350 pages. The manuscript that I submitted was closer to 500. Wow. So there was there's there was more there. <laughs> it's and, a rich topic. And and you got to interview or talk to Michael Lindsay Hogg. Right. And through COVID, I became friends with him and actually did three or four interviews with him uh, on the Internet. And boy, what what a classic guy. Uh, very talented, a real artist. And what a history. And talking to him and having the foresight to, you know, just let the camera roll for hours for the Let It Be film. And I remember in 1970 going to see it at Cambridge at a movie theater, and I was just so sad and so depressed. It didn't look very good on the big screen. It wasn't made for the big screen, it seemed like. And But, boy, what a gift years later for this seven-plus-hour film epic. It's And uh, tell us about your conversations with Michael. I interviewed him for my Let It Be book, and I interviewed him for this book, and I've had the chance to, you know, meet up with him on, on a couple of occasions. And he's just such a wonderful guy. He's, he's just a nice person. He's so creative. He's an artist, you know, unto himself. I mean, he's done so many other things. I mean, he was one of the most important directors for Ready, Steady, Go, arguably the best pop music British television show of the 60s. And he did Brideshead Revisited. I mean, he, he is a true Renaissance man. That's a, that's one of those words that gets, or phrases that gets thrown around. And he really is. I mean, he's royalty too. He's a, a, a baronet, I believe it is. I, yes. I say it in the book exactly what he is. Yes. And he is just, he, he's, in, he's, it's not surprising that he would cross paths with the Beatles. And I mean, and- he worked with the Stones too. Right. I mean, he did videos for the Beatles. I mean, Let It Be is not the only thing that he did with the Beatles. I mean, he directed the, the Hey Jude shoot, the, I believe the, the revolution yep. shoot. I mean, iconic stuff. I mean, again, another American working, working in England. And hiding um, microphones yeah. in the flowers. And I mean, doing right, the- right. <laughs> which we don't really get to the full effect until later. And him and Peter Jackson, it's very much a mutual admiration society. They truly respect one another and like one another. And Peter consulted Michael throughout a lot of the process of making the Get Back series. And I'm not surprised. I mean, I don't know Peter Jackson. I've never interviewed him. I mean, he seems like a nice guy, too. Sometimes these people, (laughs) these very creative people, they're not the nicest people in the world. But that's one of the things about Michael. It was just and, And by the way, his memoir, Autobiography, 
I forget what it's called. Something of luck is in the title, Circumstances and Luck. That is a great book. I read Truly that. Truly a great book. I read I mean, the book. It is unbelievable. I have Whether it you're home. a fan of the Beatles or not, that yep. is just a great book. He's a great writer too. Right. Luck and Circumstances. I think it's called Luck and Circumstances, right? Yes. Yeah. And he's a, a great man. And one of the things that we connected on, he was a huge Andy Cap fan as a child, the comics. And right. I told him that when I was young in the early 70s, I delivered groceries out of a store in Harvard Square. And one of the customers I delivered groceries to on a weekly basis was Al Cap. Wow. And we connected there because as a child, if you read Luck and Circumstance, he was at a, at a neighbor's house uh, in Malibu and drops his little Andy Cap or Al Cap statue in the pool. And it's the pool belonging to w- William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> and the wife invites this little child in and he spends time with him. And so we connected on that. But And you know what? Michael Lindsay Hogg remembers everything. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. I know he's had some health issues, mm-hmm. but I, I think he's doing he's doing well right now. He actually oh. wrote an article on the on the McCartney photo book for Airmail, which is Graydon Carter's new project since he left Vanity Fair. So Michael just is just everywhere. He's just he, he he's wonderful. He is. What, one thing that's a little unfortunate, perhaps now that we're we're talking about Michael Lindsay Hogg's admiration for or mutual admiration between he and Peter Jackson is, of course, Stephen, the popular imaginary. There always has to be, and I won't blame this on, on, on journalists, but there always has to be an either or. There always has to, you have to take sides. And is there, there's always a grappling for control of any type of master narrative or grand narrative about the Beatles end and how that's depicted in Let It Be. And you can either uh, like, appreciate the, the, the control and editing of Lindsay Hogg's real work of art, or you can like Peter Jackson's sprawling, make of it what you will. I'm just, I, I found everything and now here it is. Sounds great. Looks great. <laughs> Better than what we could have gotten in 1970. But uh, that's a bit unfortunate that there has to be that either or. or and then it gets bound up. It gets bound up with some of the other films here in terms of McCartney wanting to inform and influence his own depiction, as you say, some of his own insecurities. Let everybody see that there was a lot going on in Let It Be in the get back more than just me bitching out George from Let It Be. Let the world think that Steven Spielberg studied Magical Mystery Tour (laughs) in film school, as McCartney said, and see, it's a great piece. I think it's great without him having to say that. I know it was trashed and and it was at his feet because it was his idea, half-baked as it may have been. That sort of half-baked rush didn't work as well for McCartney as it did for Lester, certainly. So that is unfortunate with the two Let It Be visions, I think, at least. I think there are, <laughs> there are great things to both. I mean, I might prefer the, the, the standard of filmic approach that Lindsay Hogg takes of production and direction. And you don't get a better end. You don't get a better beginning than the beginning of A Hard Day's Night. You don't get a better end than the freeze frame of Let It Be. And so Perfect. that's, that's where, that's where my sympathies would lie. Though I, Made it through the six hours, what have you, get back. And I know there's even more out there. And I loved it. It was kind of hard to explain to others who would say, well, what did you make of it? What what was going on between them? How would you say that the Beatles are depicted there? And I, I would say that with Peter Jackson and when that came out, the Get Back series, if you will, was less about the Beatles and more about us. 
the the viewers and the listeners of the Beatles. It was really it was really about us and and how they've stayed with us in the culture, and much less about them. So interesting. That's, that's an in- interesting point of view. I, I'll just pick up on one thing you said about McCartney. I think what's happening, and you see this with a lot of these icons from the 60s, is they're getting to a point where they, they're feeling their own mortality. And I think there's this sense that they they want to, I, I, you know, control is one of those words. It, it's, it's like they want to have some control of their own legacy. They want to set the record straight or or they don't want other people to control the narrative or other people to make the money. And I don't, I'm not judging that. I'm not being negative. I'm just saying that a lot of what this is, is they want to do this stuff now while they're still around or they're still cogent enough to take care of it. Now you could, you could criticize them for that if you want. It's interesting that let it be was they all supposedly hated it so much. It was so horrible was critically bashed and I'm talking about the album and the movie and we've had let it be naked we've had the get back series we've had the let it be 50th anniversary massive box set I mean I don't think it's done I don't <laughs> believe we're finished they put out the they showed for a few weeks uh, a concert film in theaters of just the rooftop concert they put the audio of that out where you could you could stream it only that's never been physically put out officially if peter jackson had his way there would be an even longer get back cut or there'd be more related to it so i think the fact that peter has gotten involved with apple with the beatles is a good thing he's a fan he's a fanboy which is fine but he's also a he's a great filmmaker and i think that he he it was so much work to to make those lord of the rings films and those hobbit films and it requires so many people that i think he likes working in this documentary space he did a documentary before get get back because he can have more control over there's that word again and he can be more nimble and work with a smaller group of people and the emphasis and the focus isn't so much on him I think he he realizes that to make these grandiose Hollywood or or cinematic trilogies, it requires so many years, so much work, so much money. It's so many people are involved in it. It's 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 challenging. So he's able to flex his his director Jones, but do it in a in a smaller way and enjoy what he's doing. And he's helping preserve part of the Beatles' legacy. I, I I talked about this to some degree in the book, but I couldn't go into the kind of detail that I would have liked to. And I think, frankly, you could do something on Peter and the Get Back series. You could do a whole book just on that. And because of time also, I went back and rewatched the whole series again. So I've sat through it twice. And there, there's so much to talk about. I, I consider myself lucky because it really is – this is the first book to – to get into get back the series and that's just time it's not because of me yeah i just happen to be working on this project and almost as the project lifts off the ground this is going to happen so again serendipity i got a little bit of luck because if i had written this book and it came out and oh get back is coming out or came out and i missed it this book would have suffered and a lot of people would have said well why didn't you include that that's right so i'm just lucky 
And I didn't go into it as much as I would have liked to. I wish I could have gone into it with even more depth and more detail. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things there with the with with the whole world of let it be. When you say there's more there, Chachi remembers this. When when I was in college, the thing to do on a Sunday was to go to all the flea markets in Harvard Square and the used record stores. The world of Beetle bootlegs started with what was happening around let it be and, and the rooftop, the whole yellow dog phenomenon, the bl- uh, black album, all even coming out of the white album stuff. But really, that was the center of the whole. What do they have? What's out there? It began with the let it be stuff, and then felt went elsewhere. If we circle back to the film circle back to richard lester one of the his genius was not getting in the beatles way because anyone who was going to work with the beatles was going to be second banana right to not get in their way and i think jackson did it i think that ron howard did it with the touring film i think that scorsese did it with the george documentary is uh, how can we not mess with it because everyone loves them so much it's not going to be about me, the director, right? And so that, but but it's a, it's an art for a director to not get in the way, right? <laughs> to be there as a presence, but to not uh, to not be to not be in the middle of it, and it's not really about them, right? Even though they they love yeah. working with them, right? How, how especially do, a director? I mean, especially yeah. I'm sorry, especially a documentary, because a right. documentary it's almost like journalism, and so it needs to just be this objective journalistic piece. And you can be artful in that, the creation of that. But if you, if you put your thumb too much on the scale, then it sort of becomes, there's a word that I can't think of. It goes beyond documentary. It goes beyond journalism then. It becomes, it becomes new journalism and you're Norman Mailer and Joan Didion and Tom Well, Wolf. that's, that's okay. If you, that's okay if it's, if it's done the right way, but yeah. not everything needs, needs to be that. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. I just, we just watched the documentary uh, on Kurt Vonnegut that came out about two years ago that Robert Whitey directed, who uh, is a director on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He was involved with Saturday Night Live, and he is very much a part of the film and what the film is about, which is fine. He, 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 that, he sets it up that way, and we, there's no problem with it, and it doesn't detract from the story of Kurt Vonnegut. So you can, you can do that if that's what you're setting out to do and everybody knows kind of what the ground rules are. But if you do it in a way where you're, you're like Oz pulling the strings behind the curtain or putting your thumb on the scale and nobody can see it, that's not cool. Well, gentlemen, we're going to have to wrap it up here. We could go on for hours. I mean, we only talked about a hard day's night and get back. And there's so much in between. And the book thoroughly recommended The Beatles on Film, Act Naturally, Steve Mateo on Backbeat Books. Get it wherever you get your favorite books. And I got to tell you, it's a perfect holiday gift for yourself. If you're a Beatle fan, for a friend or a family member, I enjoyed it. It's It's really, really great. And we certainly can't get all the information in in an hour, but read the book yourself and check it out because I thoroughly enjoyed it. Professor Gallant, good to talk to you. Have a great holiday season. We'll be back again. This is Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network. Our executive producer, David Yaz, if you want to have your own podcast, reach out to Mr. Yaz at the Boston Podcast Network. Steve Mateo, you started your career in radio we didn't touch on that. I started in radio back in 1981. And so you moved out of radio and went to journalism. I think that was a good move. 
<laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Sometimes I have regrets about that, but you never know. Well, tomorrow you know, never knows. Tomorrow never knows, and boy, radio has changed over the years, not like it was back in the 60s, right? So yep. Steve Mateo, Act Naturally, The Beatles on Film, great new book. Excited to have you with us, my friend. Professor Gallant, uh, give my best to your students, and uh, we will talk to you soon. It's called Get Back to the Beatles, our podcast, and we hope you have a wonderful Beatle day. See you next time. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.